Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. She is Amber Jamison, and you are watching AM to DM. How you doing, Amber? I'm so excited to be hosting with you today, Isaac. I'm really excited to be hosting with you as well. This is our first time hosting together. It is, and since you're the expert, if there are any screw-ups, it's all your fault. If <laughs> So every, everything that goes wrong, mm -hmm. you heard it here first, Twitter, and it's everything here. that goes wrong on the show, it's my fault. Mm -hmm. That's usually how it goes, so that That's works fair. out. I really appreciate it. Well, listen, yesterday we had some sad news. Stan Lee has died at the age of 95. Comedian Chris Gethard tweeted, Marvel Comics didn't just entertain me as a kid, they were the first thing in my life that made me feel okay being a depressed oddball with a big head and misshaped joints. Peter Parker got made fun of in school more than I did. The X-Men were born that way. R.I.P. and thanks, Stan Lee. And our own Hayes Brown had this to say. He fought with Ditko, he fought with Kirby, his last years were fraught with litigation and possible abuse issues, but damn if Stan Lee didn't make true believers of us all. And he'd want us to march on, we marry mad men of Marvel. All right, I just want to be very clear, your accent's gonna throw me off the whole show because I don't know if you're mocking people or not. I'm mocking. The whole okay, time. that was, that was, all right. Well, listen, Hayes Brown joins us now. Good morning, Hayes. Good morning, guys. How's it going? It's going pretty Hi. good. We wanted to start with this. What does Stan Lee mean to you? Oh, man. Like, when you think about American pop culture these days, I feel like two of the people who had a greatest Im the greatest impact on the way we think about pop culture as it stands would be Walt Disney and Stan Lee at this point, just from the sheer number of characters he helped pioneer, he helped bring into this world. And the way that he and his often underappreciated partners like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby created this mythos, this really larger than life, grandiose set of stories that we can tie to. He and his contemporaries really kind of made the American myth possible. And you see that playing out in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the way that people really still tie themselves to these characters, the way that they work as touchstones for the culture. And uh, it's really my hope that uh, people will be talking about them, uh, the characters that Stan Lee helped create decades, centuries into the future. I love how much of a fanboy you are, Hayes. So I want to ask, there's a piece of writing that's been going around a lot on Twitter that he wrote about racism back in 1968. So can you tell us about Stan's soapbox? So, so sure. So um, as Spencer Ackerman of the Daily Beast put it in his phenomenal obituary that really grapples with Lee's legacy, uh, Stan Lee was a consummate brand artist. He knew how to brand Marvel Comics, how to brand comics in general, and how to brand himself. And part of that was taking on this role as Stan the Man Lee. He was the guy in the Marvel bullpen, you know, yelling out orders, having big, broad discussions about stories with his fellow writers and artists. And part of that was he knew how to read the room. And in 1968, right before that, our, that uh, so Stan Soapbox on racism, uh, he had penned another piece where he said, well, we're going to stay out of a lot of the heavier issues of the day. We're not going to talk about the Vietnam War. We're not going to talk about things of that nature. And some of the fans, which who by 1968, so many of Marvel's fans were college kids. And the comic book industry was starting to shift gears towards them. And starting to address their issues. So when Stan Lee came out with that soapbox about how racism is one of the biggest evils of our times, he was reading the room and reading it correctly. Um, also, I mean, it's not to say that it was all, you know, just a matter of uh, putting, letting people know what they wanted to hear. Stan Lee also was one of the co-creators of one of the first black superheroes, Black Panther, who, amazingly enough, the movie just came out this year. That still gets to me a little. It's been a long year. But uh, yeah, Stan Lee uh, has this long-lasting impact in terms of being more inclusive in the comics. And that's something that I feel like more comic fanboys out there should recognize and remember. Ooh, good little, good little sting there at the end. Stan Lee's life, though, it wasn't without controversy, Hayes, especially in his later years, like you yourself alluded to in your tweet. Um, what were some of the allegations and troubles he was facing? So uh, Stan, like, like you said, he's had a controversial life. And part of the problem with the way Lee branded himself was how often he let that overshadow his co-creators. Like I said in the tweet, too, he fought with Jack Kirby, who helped create the Fantastic Four, the X-Men. Kirby created Captain America without Stan Lee's help. Uh, he helped create Iron Man. Uh, Steve Ditko created Spider-Man, Doctor Strange alongside Lee. And so part of the controversy around him is how much 
of Lee's word we can take at face value when it comes to how much impact he had personally on creating these characters. Now, it's like trying to separate like Lennon-McCartney songs and the Beatles, where it was really a joint collaboration, just 50 split is the best way to do it for most of them. But in later years, I mean, he was 95 years old, and there were allegations within the last year that Stanley uh, harassed, uh, touched some of the nurses who had to care for him 24-7. Lee and his estate denied those uh, furiously. Uh, There was also allegations of elder abuse, where uh, uh, one of the people who was helping take care of Stanley was alleged of getting him to sign off on uh, documents and things that Lee shouldn't have. And so Lee's lawyer took over guardianship of him earlier this year. So it's the last few years of Lee's life really were a mess. But I don't think that should, uh, while we should like face it head on, I don't think that we should let it completely cloud over the accomplishments he had. That makes sense. Can I ask you, Hayes, one of the things that um, Stanley was known for was making a cameo in the films. So what was your favorite cameo? Oh, wow. I think, honestly, my favorite cameo would have to be one of his first back in 2000's X-Men. Because at that time... Marvel superhero movies in general were considered a waste of money. Uh, You have to remember, back in the late 90s, right before X-Men got made, Marvel was broke. They had no cash. They had been inflating their numbers in the early 90s by printing like various varied cover issues with foil holograms and people were buying those up uh, to try and get uh, the comic collect comic collectors were buying those up so that the value would increase. But Marvel printed too many and so the value started to decrease. So Marvel was in trouble by then. So when X-Men came out and it was a smash hit, it was a revolution in terms of the sort of movies that people knew could be made about superheroes and was the forerunner to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So when Stan Lee is playing like a hot dog vendor on a beach as a mutant comes out of the water, it was a real thrill to see that and think, hey, that's Stan. And even not knowing that he would be doing this for the next decade. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Hayes. Sorry for your loss as well. Yeah, man, he's feeling really passionate he's about really it. really feeling it. Absolutely. So did you have a favorite Stanley cameo? Let me tell you, uh, I really do. I love them all. It's one of mm. those things, that when I think about it, it's one of those jokes that, you know when a joke goes on for too long and you start to be like, okay, we get it, we Ooh. get the joke, but then it goes on even longer and it starts to be funny again? Yeah. Like, that's kind of how I felt about those cameos. So for me, it was Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of like when he's getting his hair cut, uh, that Stanley was the guy that cut Thor's hair. I really like that. What about mm. you? Any favorite cameos? From Stanley? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love all his films. Wow. Yeah, okay. Were, Not a giant Stan Lee fan. I get it, Amber. I get it. I will say this. I wanted to shout out Blasian FMA who tweeted, if civilization as we know it somehow comes to an end, any future civilization that develops will find Stan Lee's work and become that civilization's sacred text. Their religions will be based on the X-Men, individual heroes and villains, and the Phoenix Saga. So that's just saying it's going to be the next Bible, which shout out to you, Jay. Also, obviously, a super fan. But Twitter, we want to hear from you. What was your favorite Stan Lee cameo? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm or any memories you have of the man himself. All right. And last week, after yet another mass shooting, the NRA tweeted, someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Half of the articles and annals of internal medicine are are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. Dr. Kristen G tweeted in response, to the NRA, this is what it looks like to stay in my lane. We will not be silent about the toll of gun violence. I speak out for this patient, for their parents who will never be the same, for every person who came after this one and didn't have to. This is everyone's lane. Everyone's lane. Dr. G wasn't alone in that response. Numerous doctors and nurses took to Twitter to push back against the NRA's messaging, including Dr. Cedric Dark, who joins us now. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, how are you? We're doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, We wanted to start with what was your first reaction when you saw that tweet from the NRA? I was a little bit in disbelief that they would kind of try to step into our lane and tell us how to do science. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what is it like to treat a patient of gun violence? 
Um, well, treating someone with gun violence is actually relatively simple. There's a thing called advanced trauma life support that many physicians that actually treat gun victims uh, go through. And so we have it down pretty much to, to a simple steps. It's like A, B, C, D, E. When you, know, when you go through these steps, you identify injuries, you figure out you know, if there's a bullet in someone's belly or their chest, where that uh, injury might be. We have a couple of interventions that we do. And so, you know, it, it seems simple to us. It's not really simple. It takes years and years to actually get there, you know, four years of medical school, four or five years of residency, depending on what kind of program you're, you're doing, and then years in practice to become expert at it. But we get it down to a skill where it doesn't take a lot of extra effort um, on our, you know, our conscious minds to be able to do this. You kind of run it in the background. The difficult part, I think, is actually the emotional toll that we have. And we see the impact of gun violence every day. I saw, I worked yesterday or last night and two people came in with gunshot wounds. Um, and we see this. I, I look in those rooms sometimes and, and I look at them and I'm like, ah, you look like me, you're a young black man. And it's something that's a real, a real uh, struggle for, for our communities. I, and I wanted to ask, Doctor, what do you want to see change in terms of gun policy, uh, especially based on your experience in the ER? Well, so the things that I, I think we need to change are things we already know works. The NRA tweet actually alluded to the Rand Corporation study, and, and they tried to throw a lot of shade at the Annals of Internal Medicine because they didn't uh, agree with some of the findings that the Rand study did. And, and so let me talk about a few of those things. Number one, the things we know works to reduce either suicides or homicides or both. Background checks on every single gun sale, number one. Child access prevention laws. Uh, limiting access to firearms with some people with mental illness issues. Minimum age restrictions, like limiting it to uh, people 21 or above. Those all will reduce toll of gun violence and firearm injury. And there's two things that the NRA in their tweet did not mention, even though they tried to refer to the uh, RAND report. One of them is concealed carry laws increase violence. Think about it. If you're in a road rage incident and you have your, your gun on your side, you might be a little bit more inclined to shoot at somebody than if you don't have anything on you. And the other thing is if we get rid of laws like stand your ground, you will reduce violent crime and you won't see kids like Trayvon Martin get shot. So we've seen all we can in the last few days, photos that nurses and medical professionals have been putting on Twitter. Were you surprised to see so many um, medical professionals share their views? We were a little bit surprised. There are a few of us that started this hashtag, this is our lane, um, because we wanted to push back against that narrative that doctors aren't qualified to address the epidemic of gun violence. We are firmly qualified. And we, we created an open letter to the NRA uh, saying, hey, why don't you come into our lane? Step into the car. We're driving down the highway. We'll keep our hands on the wheel and you can join us in this fight if this is what you're interested in. That open letter right now has almost 30,000 people signed on to it in a span of three, four days. Wow, that's incredible. Has the NRA themselves issued a response? Uh, the NRA has been crickets. Every single story that I've read so far uh, from reporters says the NRA has not responded. Um, I have not heard anything directly from the NRA, nor any of my colleagues have heard anything directly from the NRA. But we're here with our, you know, our arms open. We're welcoming them into the conversation. There are things that we know science tells us will work to reduce firearm injury. And, and one thing that I want you and your viewers and the NRA to know is we're not anti-gun. Our, our group of physicians is not anti-gun. We are anti-bullet hole. We are anti-bullet hole. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cedric Dark. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for your work. Yeah, absolutely. And now to high school Nazis. A Wisconsin school district and local police are investigating a group of high schoolers doing a Nazi salute. Jules Suze Daltzell, sorry, whose thread on the photo went viral, tweeted, if anybody from Baraboo High School in Wisconsin can clue me in on why it appears the entire male class of 2018 is throwing up a Sieg Heil during their prom photos, that would be great. Ugh, ah. Awful. Sorry. <laughs> Jules joins us now. Jules, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Good question mark morning, really. Uh, but Jules, 
what the hell happened here? So uh, I, I still really can't piece together why an entire graduating class, which is actually turns out the graduating class of 2019, um, would do this. Um, originally, one of the former students reached out to me and said, you know, she had seen the photo posted by a um, sort of student uh, community run page that isn't uh, officially sanctioned by the school, but is run by the, the, the password is given out to, to all the graduating students. Um, and this was apparently the first thing they posted with the caption, um, uh, post something along the lines of like, we even got the black kid to do it, uh, you know, Barbu proud. Uh, so that shocked her, that shocked me. Um, and so honestly, I originally reached, you know, I sent it out sort of to ask, really, does anyone have any more context? Because it, it blows my mind that anyone would do this on camera, much less 50 kids. And you spoke with the one kid who stands at the side and doesn't make the salute and isn't laughing. What did he say to you about the situation? I did. Um, so uh, one of one of his uh, classmates uh, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be connected with him. Um, and he's, he's put out his name. His name is Jordan Blue. Um, and he said that he had been um, bullied by a lot of the students in that photo and that he was kind of always an outcast and that uh, when the photographer, uh, you know, asked them to, to like say make a power sign, um, he stood against it. And I, I think he's, he's amazing for doing it. And he's a really nice guy. And, um, you know, I, I respect him a lot. Obviously a ton of people are showing him a lot of love. And I think that's fantastic. Hang on. I wanted to just jump in there because you said the photographer told them to make the sign. So tell us that part of the story. Has the photographer responded and has the school responded? As far as I know, the photographer hasn't responded besides um, putting kind of a strangely worded post on his website saying um, he had to take down the photos because the internet is a, is a crazy place except when it's used by jerks, which I, I'm not sure if he's like mad that we found the photo. Um, I'm not sure we're the ones he should be mad at. Um, but as far as I can tell, the actual um, the direction of the, uh, the, the sorry of the photographer is a little bit. Uh, I couldn't get a clear answer on that from anyone who's really there. It seemed like some were saying that he said make a um, power power salute, and uh, some people took that to mean a fist, and clearly a lot of them took that to mean um, a Nazi salute. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't think the photographer said like Sig Heil, and then all of them did it. I, I think it was maybe more of a um, uh, possibly something that was that was just more common in the community. And so that's what a lot of kids did, which I hate to say, but that really might be the case based on a lot of the messages I received. And so we want to ask, did the school respond or other local authorities? Um, it, the school put out two statements um, and it, they essentially, you know, they did they did the, the fairly standard, like, um, you know, covering themselves, saying, uh, you know, we don't agree with this. We're, we're investigating this. Um, uh, they said they'll bring the police into this, which uh, uh, that part I actually don't understand. Um, but it's, uh, uh, you know, there was actually a town hall meeting, um, as far as I know, last night, where a lot of residents um, voiced how shocking and, and not reflective of the community values this is. Um, but ultimately, the school hasn't, um, as far as I know, said anything really that substantial, except, um, you know, saying they don't agree with this. Saying they don't agree with it. But uh, when this tweet went viral, you then had hundreds of students from the high school or alumnus from the high school reach out to you and DM you uh, their stories. Can you share the, uh, a few of those with us? Absolutely. I, I mean, I literally, uh, by, you know, by this point, I, I have over a hundred people who have reached out um, from the school, from the community. Um, and almost all of them uh, are saying the same thing, which is that um, there is fairly rampant um, racism, homophobia, transphobia uh, going on in the school. And almost every time um, it's directed at someone and they come to uh, school administrators, they're brushed off or they're ignored or there's no punishment. Um, you know, if some some kids were harassed over social media and the only thing that happened was that the, the harassers were asked to take the post down. Um, uh, one person said that, that you know, she... Um, she came to the administration because um, there was some racist discussion about Black Lives Matter. Um, and uh, allegedly an administrator told her that, well, look at what Black Lives Matter is doing um, to the police. So it, it does sound like fairly cohesively that um, this this isn't something that the administration has dealt with um, and that a lot of kids have been bullied and a lot of kids have experienced um, uh, really unpleasant and, and like horrible harassment um, and, and have had to just deal with it. The stories are truly horrifying. Thank you for your work and thank you so much for joining us, Jules. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Uh, educate the children. 
Educate the children. All I want to say is educate the goddamn children. Save the teens. Save the teens. All right, well, listen, later in the show, Stephanie sits down with Katie Mixon, and Amber talks to Sarita McFadden about Michelle Obama's new book, Becoming. It seems like everybody's talking about it, but up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. We were just talking about that photo from Wisconsin with all those high school students making the Nazi salute and then kind of uncovering that it's not the first problem that this school has kind of faced. And Ashley C. Ford, you tweeted, how would anybody learn in an environment like this? This isn't just inconvenient, it's the theft of an educational experience. She's completely right. Amen. All right, you ready to sage the timeline? Yes. Little fire tweets? Yes, I'm Let, ready. Let's do it. Rachie Marshall tweeted, what's the stupidest thing you've said to a celebrity? And Maria tweeted, I was helping Nick Jonas with the espresso machine at work, and I'm like, here you go, no sugar for you, because, you know, referring to him being diabetic. <laughs> Just a secret super fan. Yeah, you definitely have too much information on somebody if that's what you're doing. Because you know, because you know I know about your medical history. <laughs> That said, not to out you here, Amber, mm. you met a childhood hero yesterday. I met a huge hero yesterday, uh, Zach Hansen of Hansen. It was my day off and I came into work to see Hansen. I literally haven't thought or cared about them in literally 20 years, uh, but I thought it was too amazing uh, an opportunity to miss and actually told him, we used to, me and some other colleagues, we used to call ourselves Mrs. Zach Hansen. We said we were married, <laughs> gonna marry you. And he replied, I'm gonna have to tell my wife. <laughs> I, I had no chill. It was great. You had absolutely yeah. no chill. Uh, did, in that moment, were you taken back? Were you, did you feel like a younger version of yourself? Yeah, I felt optimistic about the future, excited, <laughs> full of hormones. Are we talking know? like one poster on the wall, no posters on the oh, wall? Oh, multiple or? posters on the wall. Multiple oh, yeah, yeah. Posters. Entered competitions to meet them, you know. Well, at least you didn't know his medical history. All right, let's get into it. Post stopped watching. You tweeted, Powerpuff Girls ain't even got fingers, bruh. Hands forever balled up in fists. They had no choice but to be about that action. And that's just true. That's true. That's just absolutely true. Yeah. How are they picking things up? Just constantly made for fighting. They can't. They can't. Do you even know what a Powerpuff Girl is? There's three girls who are cartoons. Sure. That's all I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm bad at cartoons. This is a bad day for me. You're like, no Stanley, no Powerpuff Girls. Okay. Hanson, though, whole segment. It's a different time. <laughs> all right. Drewski tweeted, someone made up dinosaur sounds without ever hearing them. <laughs> See, I don't think that's that crazy because dinosaurs are just like much larger birds <laughs> and weird animals. So like you can guess. You can kind of guess. Well, here's the thing. They guess at what they look like. They kind of got that wrong. It's kind of starting to turn out, right? And if they were giant birds, it would be less of a roar. Well, you don't know how they sound. It'd be like, <laughs> how's that? Keep going. <laughs> Pain, you tweeted, ever wonder how many ghosts you've hit with your car? <laughs> this is why I don't drive. This is why I don't drive. Agreed. Ghosts out there just minding their business. It's so dangerous. Yeah, what if you're a ghost from before the time of automobiles? <gasps> how are you feeling about that? You wouldn't even know what they were. <laughs> they keep getting in your biz. <laughs> All right, tweet of the day. You ready? You ready? All right. Comes from our own Lewis Peitzman. Global warming is such a bummer. Couldn't we be hurtling towards another ice age instead? Like if I have to die, must I die sweating? Ooh. This is a very August in New York tweet for me. As if it's like November now, I and know, it's and still, 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 we're sweating Oof. so, so much. Mm. Would, you, would you prefer ice age or, or, or what we're facing? I would prefer neither of them, but probably I said. I like your practical yeah. answer. Listen, up next, the recounts in Florida are somehow still going, so we're going live from the district with DC Bureau Chief Kate Nocera. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nocera. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. We're doing all right. Yeah, feeling good. Talking dinosaurs. Good. So I want to ask. <laughs> Sounds good. I hadn't really thought about that one before. 
Well, everything happens here. So there's a tweet from BuzzFeed News' own Dominic Holden saying Republican Governor Rick Scott was just sued over his role in the Florida recount. Kate, there are three different recounts happening in Florida. Which one does this lawsuit affect? Uh, it, it affects his role in the recount over the Senate race, which is the one that he is currently running in against Democratic incumbent Bill Nelson. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that Scott is trying to intimidate the voting boards using his role as governor to make some, you know, aggressive partisan claims that the Democrats are trying to steal the election, that there has been voter fraud, asking uh, forces that he is in charge of to investigate voter fraud, and that this uh, is an abuse of his power. Now, the judge didn't grant an immediate injunction this morning, but instead is having a hearing tomorrow morning to see if there will be uh, an injunction to stop Scott uh, in his role as, as governor from overseeing all of this mess, which is still ongoing. We might just open up a Florida bureau. I, I mean that we might open a Florida bureau. I mean that I don't know. That sounds that makes sense to me. Who filed the lawsuit originally? Yeah, it was uh, a number of uh, you know voting rights groups and uh, one individual voter uh, who says that she was disenfranchised. Those are those are the plaintiffs. Um, it does also sort of give uh, fuel to the Republicans fire that, you know, activists are, are coming in to try and mess with the election results, which is not actually true. I mean, it is full within their in their legal rights to sue. And we'll see what the judge does tomorrow morning. So can we expect that any of these lawsuits and these, um, you know, recounts are going to get settled anytime soon? Um, I don't know. I wish I knew that, Amber. I mean, it, it <laughs> I would love to know uh, when it's all going to be over. There is a so Thursday is the deadline for the machine recount. Okay. Once that is over, if they are still within a very close margin, a 0.25 margin in some of the races, then it will move to an automatic hand recount, which needs to be completed by the 18th of November. Now courts can uh, extend that deadline if there's a lot of litigation involved. Certainly there can be extremating circumstances where um, that goes further. Hand recounts, there's a, a, hand, a full hand recount in Florida is going to be a long, long <laughs> process. And you're going to get, we're going to see all those photos of people with magnifying glasses looking at ballots, and we'll all feel like we're in the year 2000 uh, come this weekend. So it does look like in at least the uh, Senate race, we're going for, um, it, it is headed to a mandatory hand recount. We'll see what the margins are in the other two races, including the race for governor uh, between Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis, who and the Republican Ron DeSantis, who is currently uh, up. Currently up. Uh, again, I'm sorry. I'm just having a flashback to the year 2000 and the, hang, 14, the hanging shads yeah. and. Okay, all right, so we'll be keeping yeah. an eye on that. Uh, okay, we also wanted to ask about Kirsten Cinema, who has officially won the Senate race in Arizona. What does her win mean for the Senate? Yeah, uh, well, it basically means that the balance of power has not really changed that much for Republicans. Um, if, uh, if things stand where they stand in Florida, uh, then it'll go to 53, I think, 49. Right now it's 52, 49. That's not a huge gain for them. They had one of the, uh, Republicans had one of the best maps that they've had in decades, right? Like this was a really, really hard year for Democrats in the Senate, and they should have picked up a lot more seats than they did. And I think Arizona was a big kind of surprise to everyone. I mean, this is this is a state that hasn't elected a Democrat in a very, very long time and has never elected uh, a female. I mean, granted, there were two women running in this race, so inevitably there would have been a, a female senator. But Martha McSally, the Republican, conceded last night um, in actually a very, like, lovely conciliatory video that had a cute dog in it. So... Um, so you can see sort of the difference in tone between Arizona and Florida right now. And what does it say that she won Jeff Flake's seat? Um, I mean, I, I think that uh, voters uh, in Arizona were were sort of tired of the 
the Flake McCain. The, the, these are two people that ran sort of in the middle of things. Um, and I imagine that there was some sort of desire for a change. I don't think it says anything super specific that it was Jeff Flake's seat in particular. Um, but certainly that Arizona is trending it, trending in a more democratic way. We'll see what happens uh, in 2020. Um, but it, it, you know, Cinema ran a campaign really, really down the middle as someone who would be independent. Uh, she never fully called herself a Democrat, you know, always talking about how she would work with Republicans when she needed to, that she would do what was best for the state. And uh, that, that appealed to voters in this cycle. All right. While we're in Arizona, while we're talking Arizona, Arizona, what's going on with John Kyle? And could McSally be appointed in his place? Yes, she could, which is also why I think you might see a little bit of the difference in tone coming from McSally versus uh, Governor Rick Scott in Florida. McSally has not engaged in this sort of deeply partisan rhetoric of, oh, well, it's a fraud or, you know, the Democrats are trying to steal the election. She has been very conciliatory. All of the local officials are Republicans, so she doesn't want to really piss them off. And there's a pretty good chance that the governor will appoint her uh, once, you know, Kyle, John Kyle uh, took the seat after John McCain died, and it was always supposed to be sort of a temporary fill-in until after the election. Now that the election's over, um, Kyle will probably step down in the next month or two. Uh, and it is highly likely that uh, McSally will take that seat. She was a close ally of John McCain. Cindy McCain really loves her. The governor really loves her. It would not surprise me if she also ends up in the Senate very soon. All right. Well, Kate, thank you so much for talking midterms with us a full week after they happened. Well, maybe next week we'll still be talking about it. Who knows? <laughs> Looking forward to it. The midterms just never end. <laughs> so here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News' Jane Litvinenko. Trump is tweeting bogus voter fraud claims. Here's how they echo systematically spread online conspiracies. Jane joins us now to talk about her story. Good morning, Jane. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on, Jane. How are Trump's voter fraud claims so like those of online conspiracies? So with the online conspiracies, we've really seen a big rainbow of bullshit. Um, so it has been everything from tampered ballots, faulty, with bo uh, faulty uh, voting machines. And one of the latest big conspiracies is that there's trucks um, driving fake ballots into polling stations. And all of this is not true. There's no basis to believe in that. Um, and the way that Trump's tweets echo that is that they essentially say that uh, ballots have been tampered with and uh, all of uh, Donald Trump's tweets culminated yesterday in essentially saying that a fair recount is no longer possible and we must go with the results of the election on election night. Um, there's, again, no basis to think that there's any kind of uh, ballot tampering. Um, but it has, uh, this, this online environment has sort of culminated in the president's Twitter feed uh, in this conspiratorial thinking. So who is spreading these false claims online, uh, obviously apart from the president? Right, that's a really good question. So uh, a lot of the times it's anonymous accounts and accounts that are focused on conspiracy theories. Uh, we've worked with some researchers who have been tracking the conversation around voter fraud on Twitter, and they have been seeing spikes in the conversation, which essentially suggests that there's a coordinated campaign to bring the issue of voter fraud, of voter fraud front of mind for people and sort of make it look like more people are talking about this than... Uh, actually are. Now, we don't actually know who's doing this. It's possible that it's uh, domestic or foreign. We just don't know. Um, but we do have to remember that um, because of the, how easy it is to create a Twitter account and post something, it really could be anybody. Um, and the level of the conversation that they're having really does not match the allegations of voter fraud or the reality of voter fraud in America right now, which is statistically insignificant. 
All right, Jane, I want to say, I saw you actually even talking with Twitter uh, yesterday. What are Twitter and Facebook doing to combat this, if anything at all? And what did Twitter have to say about the president tweeting out false claims? Right. Uh, so Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram have been facing this really interesting challenge during the midterms because now, two years after 2016, they know that their platforms can be misused and manipulated. Uh, but it really doesn't seem like they're catching all of the bad content that there is out there. So when on election, uh, on election night, uh, we brought a tweet to Twitter saying this video is showing, is claiming that there's voter fraud when there really isn't. And there was this blurry 14 second video of a, of a ballot uh, machine, but voting machine, but we don't actually know what's in it. Um, and several election officials reached out to Twitter and said, hey, uh, this is really not what happened. Here's what happened. Can you take it down? Twitter said no. And so when we asked them about this uh, manipulated activity online that the researchers have been tracking, they essentially pointed us to a thread without answering any of our questions that they've tweeted saying that, yes, there was manipulation online, but we found it insignificant. Um, and of course, this is the type of thing that officials have been worried about from the very beginning with midterms. So it's kind of disappointing to see social media networks not take action, knowing that their platforms are manipulated. It's super depressing and disappointing. So thank you so much for joining us, Jane, and talking about all these terrible things. Thank you very much. Please don't share terrible things on your timelines. Hey. <laughs> Please don't share Good terrible tip. things on Good your timeline. <laughs> and up next, it's Stephanie's interview with Katie Mixon. Stay tuned. This is a sit down and I'm joined with Katie Mixon, star of American Housewife, one of the funniest shows on TV. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here. So you just started a new season of your show. I and did, season it, three. Season three, congratulations thank by the way. Thank you honey. So one of the things that your character is going through this season is that she's going back to work. She's right. going to be a working mom. She is. So you obviously are a working mom yourself. Um, did I'm you live in it. Yeah. So she's in the story, in the storyline, she's kind of dealing with mom guilt. Did you relate to that at all? Completely. It's really, really crazy. Um, she's trying to manage, you know, the work and the three kids at home. I don't have three kids. I have two babies. So it's different in that sense. But it's wild, honey. I tell you what, two babies back to back in um, basically one year and and doing these 50 hour, 65 hour work weeks. It's really, really crazy. But I'm so blessed. I'm really, really grateful to be doing, being given the opportunity to like do what I love to to do, do you know? But it's it's a I've got a team with me. It's it's a whole I'm, I've got an army behind me, which is incredible. One of the things about your show that I really really love is you're talking about very serious topics, right? About you know body image and maybe not feeling perfect, which obviously as women is something that everyone everyone struggles with, no. even the quote unquote perfect moms totally. that we see out there and mental health and mental illness. Yeah. How do you balance talking about these really heavy topics on your show with all of this humor and the lightness? Because your show is also super funny. I think that there is power in bringing comedy to very, like, very heavy topics and finding the humor in it all. Um, you know, I, it's a really interesting situation being put in this position of playing, you know, Katie Otto, um, because she struggles. She struggles a lot with what people think and, and what, you know, people say and everything. And then, and then, and then she doesn't. She's, she both, you know, in life, it's very interesting to be, um, I don't know. I just think in life you could do, it, it's, hypocritical in many ways like one day you feel one thing another day you feel another but it's about I don't know it's just about marching to the beat of your own drum and realizing you're not gonna get it perfect every time and that you were your own person there's nobody else like you in this world 
that's what's really, really powerful, I think. And I feel like the character is so relatable to so many women because I feel like on TV you do see kind of the perfect woman a lot, right. and then you see the person who doesn't have as many self-confidence, have as much self-confidence, mm -hmm. and that person is usually portrayed as someone who is quiet or meek or shy, and no, Katie's not. exactly the opposite. She's the opposite. She's the type of person who maybe masks some of her self-conscious self-confidence issues, uh, self -confidence issues yes. with humor. And that's so real to me. I know. I so know. what was it like? What is it like to bring such a unique character to the screen? It's a dream come true, to be honest with you, Honey Bun. I, I came from my Kamali four days later. I ended my Kamali January 2016. Four days later, I walked into the American Housewife room. I was really, really in search of doing something entirely different. They hardly put any makeup on me. I wear Paul Bunyan shirts. Um, I'm covered up. Like it's, I wanted something really, really uh, kind of just very, very different than what I had um, been blessed to do, but just something you know different. And I, I got my dream come true. So I'm just kind of sinking my teeth into it. And it's really cool because she's a firecracker. You know, I'm a firecracker, but we're different. You know, we're different, much different. I don't get mad at a green juice, and it's okay if you're going to do yoga. So. <laughs> I know, the green juice stuff is so funny. So obviously you've become a parent, as we talked about, yes. since starting this show. And Katie has a very interesting parenting style, right? She loves her kids, that's so clear, but she rejects a lot of the traditional parenting style she sees among these, quote-unquote, uh, you know, not perfect about, Right, she's not about them. Moms. Exactly, she doesn't want them to be Spoiled. She wants them to. Um, she's tr yeah. She's trying to have them not be douchey. That I feel like is something that that's we can all. That's all we could all get behind. <laughs> so. I think it's so interesting you becoming a mom yourself. Do you find that you're doing anything the character's doing? Do you no, I'm do very opposite of her. <laughs> <laughs> and I say it with love. Um, my background's just totally different. I come at it from an, a different approach um, than, than that character that I play. But I love her so much. Yeah. So you're not, you're not making your kids pick up trash on the side of the road? I don't believe so, because they're not going to get to that point. Do you feel me? So I know it made me laugh so hard, right? by the way. Oh, I know, completely. I was like, yeah, but he was, yeah, that was crazy. That was episode two. That was yeah. episode two. Right, my whole thing is with Kingston and Electra, and me and my husband are so in agreement, um, yet they're babies. They don't talk right now. Uh, but they are, we're not even going to get to that point. Right? Hopefully. Yeah, we would hope you wouldn't have to, you know, get rid of any douchiness. They just would never have I know. Douchiness. Cool names, by the way. Thank you so much. So, obviously, we see you now starring in your own sitcom, but you have worked so hard to get to this point. Uh, you were on Mike and Molly, as you mentioned. You've been on Eastbound and Down. What is it like now starring on your own sitcom after years of working in acting? And is there anything you want to do next? I would adore to do movies next. I've, I've started in movies. I did uh, kind of like uh, movies back to back. I did All About Steve with Sandra Bullock and then Four Christmases. Um, uh, you know, just back, back to back stuff. And I would love to do a drama. I'd love to get back into doing that. But I am staying present where I am right now. And it is just the biggest gift, honey, to be able to be given the opportunity to do what you love to do. Every day I have, I come with a, a grateful heart. With that wake up call at 4.45 a.m. in the morning. Um, but I'm, I come with a grateful heart and I'm, it's a dream come true. I started, you know, when I was little, I watched Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett. Um, over and over again. And so it's just incredible to be given this opportunity. I don't think of it as me starring in a television show. I never, that's not my perception of it. Uh, I come from, my background's theater, so I'm a very big fan of like the prop guy is just as important as the PA, and the PA guys, are, you know, we're all a team. Um, and that's when I step on that stage on 20, stage 23, that's how, that's what I feel. We're, we're all a team making it together. That's such a lovely sentiment. Plus you sound pretty busy, so. <laughs> A little busy. <laughs> little busy. Okay, so before you go, here at BuzzFeed, we love playing games. and Yes, I love games. Obviously. So we were hoping to play a little round of Would You Rather TV Mom Style. Okay, I'm loving it. Okay, you Hit ready? Me. Yes. Okay, first one. Would you rather switch places of the day with Marge Simpson or Lorelai Gilmore? Marge. Marge, why? I don't know. I feel like she has, like, a good time. I don't True. know. Right? I mean, you can. You're married to Homer, but you, you feel me. I mean, that's a whole situation yeah. in itself. <laughs> God bless. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get it. I get what yeah. you're saying. I get what you're saying. Right. Okay, 
Would you rather go shopping with Fran from The Nanny or Peggy Bundy, married with children? Fran has so many things going on. Probably Peggy, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, a little more like your sphere. Like, Fran was kind of out there, right? Fran was out there. Although her clothes, she always gave you really genius belts. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. yeah. She was like always like giving you like business suit, like yeah, 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 really yeah. tight business suits. Maybe Fran. I mean, it was the 90s. I mean, yeah. We can, do, we can do like a little combo of the two styles. Then let's do a combo. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I welcome it. Okay, would you rather read a parenting book from Kris Jenner or Bethany Frankel? <laughs> I feel like I might do a mixture. Of okay, we're going to do another combo. Right? Yeah. We're going to do another combo. I'm really on the combo tip. Yeah. Yeah. They're both kind of momagers, I They're guess, in a way. They're totally momagers. Yeah. I've, I feel like they've got things to say, and they know a thing or two. So, yeah. I want them both to, they should just release a co-parenting. Completely. Co <laughs> I feel like people How would to run it. an empire. I know. Try. <laughs> okay, would you rather have as your PTA president for your kids, Claire Dunphy from Modern Family or Bo Johnson from Blackish? Probably Claire. I feel like Claire would get it done. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like Bo's too busy being a doctor or whatever. Me too. Yeah. I feel like Claire would really just attack it. Yeah, for sure. Full throttle. That's true. Okay. Would you rather go on a lunch date with Carmela Soprano from The Sopranos or Betty Draper from Mad Men? Carmela. Carmela. She's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you know that she's gonna Edie Falco. Yeah. That's Unreal. True. I did my first movie with her. What was she like? She was incredible. I knew nothing. Alicia Cuthbert. <laughs> it was called The Quiet. God bless. <laughs> and I was, it was Alicia Cuthbert and her, Edie mm -hmm. Falco, and I knew nothing. Alicia taught me everything, yeah. um, how to film. And Edie was, she was incredible. She was, it was such a, yeah, she's amazing. Pretty jealous. Okay, <laughs> one final one. This is involving some of your characters. Okay. Who would you rather hire as a babysitter? Yes. Victoria from Mike and Molly or April from Eastbound and Down? Definitely April. How come? because she's not Victoria. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank American you, Housewife airs Wednesdays on ABC, and more AM to DM is coming up next. tweeted this about former First Lady Michelle Obama's new memoir. Just hearing her voice again nestled, nestled in my AirPods is soothing. Michelle Obama is inspiration personified, devouring every word. Now we have writer Sarita McFadden joining me to talk about Becoming, which hits bookstores today. Hi, Sarita. Hey there. Good morning. Excellent. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. We're all good. We're all good. Okay, okay. So, Oprah, everyone's fave, tweeted um, that from the very first pages of Becoming, I knew I wanted everyone to read it. I've known Michelle for 14 years, but this book is so vulnerable, I felt like she was in my ear. So what is it about this book that is so personal? You know, Michelle Obama has this unique ability to connect with Americans across identities on such a human and personal level. Um, because she kind of oh. is kind of the proc well, she's the kind of the proxy for all of us, really. The the witness to this miraculous moment in American history where we elect um, the first African American um, to be president of the United States, and and her background as someone she's so specifically American. She's from the heartland. She's from the Middle West. She's from Chicago. She's urban. Um, she comes from a working class roots. And her assiduous connection to herself and her own story and owning that and being present and living with that and standing in these multi in these both of these opposite truths is really what makes her relatable to all of us. Um, and yeah, like it, in Oprah's right, it absolutely feels like she's talking in your ear. You're having this really warm, conver intimate conversation, like the narrative voices of book is this warm, intimate conversation about how she started and how she continues to bloom and become. You're witnessing several different becomings as the pages unfold in the book. 
So you talked just then about her being um, America's first black first lady, which obviously really cemented her place in history. And how does she talk about race and having to deal with racism while she's in the White House? Well, she does it pretty uniquely from two different vantage points. She looks at it from the bookends of when they were campaigning in 2007 and 2008, and then also in the time during um, the, during Barack Obama's term, where we see the ascendancy of the Black Lives Matter movement. She talks about quite specifically how the media coverage and the opponent and really worked to try and other her and Barack Obama to the extent that somehow her ness, her blackness was something foreign or not of the same kind of people. They tried to, you know, there was a, a very specific effort of misrecognition to try and make Michelle Obama fit into these contorted racist tropes about black women. Um, and she talks about it rather frankly in a sense of how this education of one particular moment in Wisconsin in February 2008, where she said where the soundbite gets cut and spliced into saying, the, the time that she was the most proud of her country. And that moment really was taken out of context to the fullness of her remarks, which was looking at engagement folks were having with the Obama campaign in 2008. That was the beginning of, re, of, of a rewrite or an overwriting her narrative. Why do you think that would make her fit into this, like fit into racism? Then she switches later on in the book, and she talks quite specifically about the devastating impact of these how she and Barack Obama were highly aware that their presence was a provo was indeed in fact a provocation. And then she talks quite specifically about the memorial service for the church uh, for the Emanuel AME. Sarita, so we're having a few different uh, sound issues, just like Michelle Obama being quoted out of context. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And are you planning to read Becoming? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Up next, we're talking about dating with a mental illness. Here's a tweet from New York Magazine. Bipolar 2 can make you feel like you're being swept down a river, desperately trying to cling on to something steady. For me, that something was always a person. That's a quote from Dana Hamilton, who joins me now to talk about her experience dating before and after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks for having me back. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, so I love this piece. Thank you. I wanted to start with, you, you start with the piece, you, you talk about how you had different thoughts of what bipolar actually was. Absolutely. How were you wrong uh, before you were diagnosed, and then what did you learn? Unfortunately, I, like many people, had my uh, views of mental illness and what it actually looks like from the media, which, you know, super reliable source. Um, and when I heard the word bipolar, I thought, mommy dearest, I thought yelling and screaming, I thought, you know, uh, ups and downs, and just all over the place and angry and all this stuff. And uh, I go to a psychiatrist's office and I, I essentially tell her, hey, you know, I don't have bipolar. I just work until three in the morning. I get up at 5.45, fresh as a daisy. I never sleep, mm -hmm. um, rapid speech, all this stuff. And she's like, uh, LOL, no, uh, you have bipolar too. This is what it looks like. Um, got on the correct medication feel like a completely different person, to be honest. Feel like a completely different person. Now, what is the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two? Bipolar two, um, you experience uh, periods of depression, which we all know what depression looks like, and hypomania. So hypomania, um, mania and bipolar one can look like gambling, um, risky uh, sexual actions. It can look like drug abuse. For hypomania, you have these ups. And the way that I describe it is bipolar two for me is like a difference in energy levels. Mm. I can work all through the night. I can be up you know, all hours and then I kind of crash on the weekends type thing. Um, I never engaged in any risky behavior. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the difference. And that was the bipolar two. Now, mm. how did being diagnosed change your views on monogamy? So before before I got diagnosed and um, properly treated, I was feeling kind of 
bad, to be honest. And I would go into dating with like a goal-oriented mindset, where the purpose of dating is to find a partner and that's it. It was a very much a thank you next type situation. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not my partner? Okay, bye. Um, and that's because I truly believed that I could not make it through life without someone there to help me. Mm. I felt really out of control. I felt really um, that I just couldn't, I wouldn't be able to handle the things that life threw my way on my own. That you didn't feel independent enough to kind of grapple with that. Were you surprised that being diagnosed changed your views so, Absolutely. so strongly? Absolutely. I have friends and family who are like, you're a completely different person. When you have anxiety, which is also um, a bipolar 2 uh, symptom, which I believed I just had generalized anxiety disorder my entire life, um, and that was wrong. It was actually part of the bipolar 2. And once that's erased, the way that you view life and the way you navigate life, it affects all facets of life, not just dating. Not just dating, yeah. like all facets. I do, I do want to say something else in the piece that really struck me mm -hmm. was you wrote a little bit about how like the cultural messaging and societal yeah. pressure to be partnered is heightened right. when you already feel like you're not normal. Right. So could you just expand on that thought a little bit? Regardless of how strong and independent you are, you feel the pressure to be partnered in our society. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter, mental illness, regardless, you're always gonna feel it. When you have anxiety, and if you anyone out there has anxiety, you know that you can succumb to fatalistic thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, and I constantly felt, what if I lose my job? What if I lose my place to live? What if I lose all this stuff? I don't have anyone to back me up. Mm. Um, and that's kind of where this all kind of uh, fit into my views on dating. Mm. I mean, I, it, again, I really enjoyed it. I also, not to keep, I'm like quoting yourself back That's to you a bunch. That's fine, I love hearing my own words. Okay, perfect, I'm glad, glad then you came on right. You <laughs> tweeted that being properly treated helps you become a more open-minded partner and a stronger, more independent person. Right. So how is your approach to dating different now? Yeah, um, so fun fact, I just got back from a year-long road trip, a uh, road trip much like yours. Whoa, Yeah. year-long? Yeah, uh, I did across the country and back on my own. Wow. Uh, started three months after being properly medicated. Uh -huh. um, couldn't have done it without proper treatment, honestly. And what it kind of forced me to do was by, um, you know, by just circumstance, I had to be non-monogamous. I was living in six different cities for one to two month, months each. Um, if you want to read more about it, I have a blog called Eat Dry Fuck. Uh, that's All linked right. on my website. Yeah, um, and I kind of, like, I was able to stop and enjoy people for who they are instead of constantly having these thoughts of like, are you my partner? Is this gonna work out? Are you gonna leave me? Like, mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, I got to get to know people, I had a great time, and you know, uh, it, I enjoyed dating more, to that, be honest. That's incredible. What an incredible accomplishment, especially for somebody that for so long felt like they weren't enough on their own. Absolutely. You should feel a lot of pride about that. Thank that's you. truly, truly incredible. Um, just one quick question before we let you go. Seeking help is hard. Yeah. What advice would you have to anyone that's trying to take that first step? I would say don't rely on the media to inform uh, what mental illness looks like. Do mm. your research. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that bipolar 2 presents differently in women than it does in men. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say that uh, keep the faith because mm. when you have anxiety, when you have, I've also experienced eating disorder, PTSD, when you have those things, it's very easy to be like, why bother? I'm always gonna feel this way. Mm. There's no way out. Mm. And I'm living proof that there absolutely is and you can go off and do amazing things. And you don't have to feel like this forever. You really don't with proper treatment and medication, if that's correct for you. Dana, thank you so much for sharing your story, for coming on, for writing the piece, and I look forward to reading more of your writing in the near future. Uh, up next, Amber and I are reading your tweets. Stick around, we'll be right back. And This is the shimmy. This is the Amber shimmy. I saw people on the timeline noticing. They liked it when you did fire tweets. You were doing a little dance. I didn't even know I was doing it. It was just. That's your that natural of a performer. Yeah. You just got that. I'm gonna. I, I'm the fire tweets just went through me. I also want to say again because this is your second time hosting. Yes. Ever. 
Mm -hmm. You handled technical difficulties like a champ. That was a great conversation you were having with Sarita. She was super interesting and I was sad that we couldn't hear it all. Yeah, absolutely, but you handled it like a champ. I'm very impressed. Round of applause, I think, are in order for Amber Jamison. Yeah. Come on. Let's get to you guys, though. We asked you what your favorite Stan Lee cameo is, and our friend Ashley C. Ford says, that Thor cameo is my favorite, too. It is. It's a really good one. He's, he's going to cut Thor's hair. Also, it gave us Thor with short hair quite a hunk. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I said yeah. I it. I said it. <laughs> I have brave takes. <laughs> we had our producer Patrick says, my favorite Stan Lee cameo is in the Teen Titans Go movie because it's a DC Universe cartoon, and he's just out here building bridges. Aww. Yeah, you, I know we saw Hayes' very kind of emotional reaction. Very, people are very emotional. I feel like Patrick, our <laughs> producer, is probably... I'm basically calling Patrick a nerd. BJ Mendelsohn okay. says, Teen Titans go to the movies. Uh, apparently that's a favorite, and I... Have you seen this? I've seen none of these. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was I in trouble for not knowing all these things, and I could fake it, and I could be like, oh, Teen Titans go to the movies. That was a great movie. But that's not what we do here. We're all about radical realism. I will say this. She does know who the Powerpuff Girls are. Yeah, I've seen Black Panther. <laughs> That's the only one. <laughs> that's, that's the one to see. <laughs> Thank you, Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> and finally, Esther says, him on the bus in Doctor Strange. That is a good one. That is a good one. I like this, just like a little memory, memory lane. That's I'm sure this is basically a BuzzFeed post. I'm sure there's a BuzzFeed post that is like Someone's all, writing it. all the best cameos. Well, again, thank you so much, Amber, and thank you to our guests, Hayes Brown, Jules, Suze, Daltsev, Dr. Cedric, Dark, Kate Sarah Jane, Litvinenko, Katie Mixon, Stephanie McNeil, Sarita McFadden, and Dana Hamilton. And Isaac and Saeed will both be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. That's absolutely right. We'll see you then. Up top, buddy. Yeah. You want to shimmy out? Shimmy out? A little shimmy out? All right.